You're listening to the Growth Experts Podcast. So if you're looking to 10X your business by learning proven growth strategies, you're in the right place. During my interviews with top CEOs, entrepreneurs, and marketers, I dig deep to uncover the real strategies, hacks, and tools to help you achieve your goals. And I'm your host, Dennis Brown. Hey, everybody. If you're interested in learning how to leverage LinkedIn for your business, this episode is sponsored by my book, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful LinkedIn Users. To get your free copy, just send a text to 44222 with the word seven habits. That's the number seven habits to 44222. Now let's get on with the show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. And today we have yet another amazing guest. His name is George Arison, and he's the co-founder of Shift, an online marketplace that's disrupting the $1.4 trillion used car industry. An immigrant from Eurasia, George moved to the United States as a teenager and became the first student from a Soviet Union to attend a private U.S. high school. From there, he went on to work for Google before going out and co-founding his first on-demand mobile transportation booking technology, Taxi Magic, which is now known as Curb, two years before Uber was even created. So George loves when technology is able to solve day-to-day problems, and he spent his career creating the space and possibilities for it to do so. So welcome to the show, George. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. It's interesting. You know, there's got to be a really interesting, cool backstory to that whole to the whole curb business that you had before Uber. And so today, I just want to, just to tee it up for everybody, we're going to talk about a really important and relevant and contextual topic that we've never talked about before because we're in a really unique situation. George has a lot of experience in raising capital and financing startups and dealing with recessions because he's been through it. Much like any seasoned entrepreneur, he's been through upturns and downturns in the market. So we're going to talk about how to fund your startup or how to fund your business during a recession to position you for growth as you move out of that recession. Because of course, every recession comes and goes. So before we dive into that, George, give us a quick backstory. Tell us that story about how you, you know, your first business, Taxi Magic, and then we'll dig right in. Sure thing. So I always thought I was going to start a company and I never thought I was going to start a tech company. I was at BCG, the consulting firm, and taking taxis everywhere all the time because I didn't have a driver's license. So when you go to clients, I had to like book cabs. had a list of every location where I would be and the cab companies in those locations kind of super annoying, right? And this is when the BlackBerry is a primary phone. I had a mentor named Tom DePasquale who had started a company that became what is now Concur, which is an expense management tool. And so he and I would be talking about you know, this concept of like, hey, how do you solve the challenge of cab bookings? And then how do you solve the challenge of cab expensing on the back end? And that's how Taxi Magic was born. Our initial concept was, hey, can we take the existing ecosystem of cab companies out there, use technology to tie to their dispatch systems, both to book a taxi and then to pay for a taxi? I didn't know anything about how to start a company, like at all. It was totally kind of the last thing I would have thought about how to do. And I certainly knew nothing about technology. But with Tom's help, we ended up leaving Toby Russell, who is my co-CEO at Shift, but also was my co-founder at TaxMagic. We left PCG. And we all started uh, Tax Magic together. And that was a really interesting ride. I learned a ton. We made a ton of mistakes. And, you know, along the way, obviously, created a new industry. What year was it? We got going in 2006, I think December 2006, January 2007 at that time. So iPhone did not yet exist. BlackBerry is the primary phone and the primary device that business travelers are using. 
And, you know, the need there was really huge because if you wanted to get a taxi at that point, you had to like stand outside kind of hailing, you know, a cab on the street or book a Boston coach or a Deval transportation limousine that would cost you like 120 bucks an hour. It's kind of totally crazy. So the opportunity was really, really massive to use technology. And of course, the challenge was that the cab companies were not yet under threat. And so they did not feel like they needed to improve. And we did get a bunch of cab companies to work with us. And, you know, we reached about 15, 20% of taxi bookings in Bay Area, in Chicago, Houston, Dallas, Washington, D.C. metro area. But in a lot of places, like getting cab companies to work with you was really, really difficult because they didn't think that it was necessary. And then by the time they thought it was necessary, kind of in 2010, 2011, it was too late for them. But if you look at Asia, right, and you look at like, you know, the taxi dispatch systems over there or the car dispatch systems over there, kind of the Uber competitors, they all actually have taxis that are really a big part of their business because cab companies in Asia realized that, hey, this was going to happen to them. And so they wanted to change versus here, they just didn't want to change. Gotcha. So how much capital did you raise for that business? Well, I wasn't doing fundraising in that company, but I think in total, while I was a tax manager, we raised about 10 million bucks. Now in 2007, 8, 9, 10, that was actually a lot of money. Like our series A, we didn't have a seed round. We did it a series A was like two and a half million dollars, which back then was a really big series A. Now, obviously like since then it's 10x in costs or in funding. By the way, like it's amazing that the companies are raising all this money now, but costs have gone up as well, right? Dramatically. So there's been inflation on salaries the same way that there's been inflation and in how much money companies have to raise have to pay for them. Yeah. How did that end? Your pivot out of that taxi magic. What did you do? Um, how did that well, pivot out? I was, we were doing great and we were actually by far the number one player in the market when I needed to leave in, in 2010 to get a job somewhere else to get my green card because my green card was rejected a couple of times and it was just too risky for me to stay at that company. So I ended up leaving and, and that's how I ended up at Google to get my green card and also to learn a ton, obviously. But, you know, afterwards, after I was no longer there, TaxMedic raised more money, grew some more, but really kind of missed the opportunity because it never gave a device to cab drivers. So it never gave a software app and a phone to cab drivers. It was always going through taxi fleets. And, you know, Uber and Lyft came in and, and went with the device directly to the, to the driver. Then obviously Lyft said, hey, I'm going to have any random person be driving uh, here, not just a taxi driver or a black car driver, which really changed the game on a lot of things. And, you know, taxi is still around. Actually, a lot of cab companies now use it because it's the only software opportunity they kind of have to talk directly to a customer. But the winners in the space, obviously, are Lyft and Gotcha. Okay. So you pivoted over to Shift. So tell us first, give us a quick intro into what Shift is. And then after that, we'll talk about, you know, the funding and how to go through this process. Oh. So Shift is a way to buy and sell a car. If you want to sell a car, you come to Shift.com. You submit your car information. We will buy the car from you. Somebody will come to your house, your office, pick up the car, and then you never see it again. And then if you want to buy a car, Shift was kind of really designed for the coronavirus-like world because you never have to come to a store. So you find the car you want online, you book a test drive, and the test drive shows up at your house. And you're able to then drive the car you know, without anybody in the car with you in a totally uh, clean way. And then uh, if you want to purchase that car, you can transact on a mobile device to close the transaction. Or if you don't even want to do a test drive at all and just want to buy the car, the car, you can do that online fully digitally and the car will show up at your you know, location once you've bought it. And we give customers about a five-day money-back guarantee if they want to back, bring back the car. So it's basically a streamlined way to buy and sell used cars. Correct. Yeah. Awesome. Perfect. So does that run a lot through an app or is it app-driven or is it really more just 
well, browser-driven? It's all digital-driven. All um, digital, yeah. uh, right, all digital. And there are apps that we have both for our operations team that uses things when they're in the field, but also for our customer. Most of our consumers come to Shift.com and experience the product through the website. There are, are obviously consumers who download the app. About, I think, 20% of our buyers end up using the app, but they are the most kind of loyal customers because the likelihood of their converting to buy when they download the app is very, very high. But it's not like we are a business that like really pushes you to download the app. That's not our goal. People can use our product you know, really well from the, from the website as well. So can you share, give us a sense of size and scope of the business? I mean, whether it be sure. like revenue or a range of revenue yeah. or growth or last something? Year we, last year, we did $175 million in revenue. Now, you know, this year we're planning on doing 250. Now let's see what actually happens, right? It's really tough to predict what the world will look like in these days. Right now, I feel sort of reasonably good about units in terms of how many units we might sell, you know, at least be able to give some level of projection. It's a little tougher actually to predict revenue because prices are moving all over the place. And we are seeing a shift towards older vehicles more. So we have two types of vehicles. We have what we call our core cars, which are cars under eight years in age. And then we have value cars that are over eight years in age. And, you know, roughly this stood was kind of 25, 75 historically between core and value. Now I think we're going to a world where it's going to be like 65, 35, maybe even 60, 40, because the demand for cheaper cars is, is rising pretty rapidly. How much capital have you raised for that business? So we raised $225 million of equity per shift and another $75 million of debt. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Well, listen, we've got a really good background on shift and your previous business. And that obviously qualifies you to talk about funding, considering you've raised over $200 million in equity capital, which is no easy feat having raised money in the past. No matter how good the market is, it's not easy to raise $200 million. So with that in mind, tell us, help us to understand how, what businesses should be doing moving forward as we go forward through this crisis. And as we come out of this, you know, depending upon how the economy reacts in order to position themselves financially for success, whether that be raising funds or whether that be just different financial strategies you would recommend. So look, I'm very much hoping for a V-shaped recovery, right? Like that'd be awesome. And that's what kind of glimmers of that are happening in China, but there's no guarantee that's going to happen. And even then the pain is really high, right? I think we should get ready for sustainably higher unemployment and people just being much more careful with the spending because, you know, there's so much disruption that's happening and inevitably it's going to impact people in a, in a tremendous way. So our approach at Shift has been, hey, conserve capital as much as possible. And we've taken some pretty painful measures to do that. We had to do some pretty substantial furloughs in our, in our field team and everybody who is a salaried employee at Shift took a 25% pay reduction. That's part of this kind of process, at least for the next you know, couple of months. And then we'll see what happens after that. The reason being that you know, we think cash is king and you have to be present to win, right? If you're not around, you're going to be dead. And that, that doesn't allow you to win at all. So our approach has been, hey, extend runway as much as possible and, and do whatever it takes, even as painful as it might be in this environment. Now, I think, you know, the impact in our business has been substantial because obviously people's willingness to spend money on consumer goods is, it has fallen dramatically. And so I think, you know, we are going to apply for some government grant funding and, and hopefully that'll help as well and allow us to keep our payroll more in place because obviously the worst thing you can be doing right now is, is following people. That's really painful. But I think that everybody should be thinking about conserving cash as much as possible, no matter what they're doing. And even if they think their business will not be affected, they should almost assume like it will be, and they should take measures to try to conserve costs. So whether that's like salary reductions or furloughs or other cost reductions, renegotiating your leases, 
etc. You just got to do everything because there's like no playbook. It's just like, where can I save money? I should try to save money. I think that's a really, really critical piece because we should all operate on the assumption that this lasts longer than we think it's going to last. And it's going to be more painful that it, uh, than you think it's. If we are wrong, right, and it ends up being ending quickly and recovers really fast, all you did was try to conserve money, which is good for you anyway. But if, if it isn't and this lasts longer, you'll be really happy to have saved as much money as possible because otherwise you won't be present to win. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, you definitely got to be in it to win it and you got to extend that runway, especially whether you're operating profitably or not. Because again, we don't know if this is a four-week, eight-week, four-month, one-year situation. It could extend itself out. So being prepared, exactly. you know, the old Boy Scout you know, analogy, be prepared is definitely a good way to focus on this. I mean, when we were talking about, you know, furloughs and stuff, I was like, well, aren't people going to go and work at Google or Facebook? I'm like, guys, 25, 30% of Google's revenue is small businesses. And like, you know, 90% of them are on the verge of dying right now. So no, like Google's going to be in facing a lot of challenges too. I just, I think short of a few businesses out there, like Zoom, almost everybody's going to be facing a challenge as a result of what has happened. Got it. Perfect. So step one is obviously cut costs where you can and be prepared that way. Now, from financing, you also mentioned you're going to apply for some government funding. And I think that's there's a lot still up in the air about that yeah. because we don't know how businesses are going to navigate that. We don't know how much money is going to be. Eventually, that pool is going to run out. Who knows if they're going to re-dip in and add another I'm almost certainly, I'm almost certain that they are because you know, McConnell's trying to get it done this week. But you know, yes, you should do it sooner versus later. Yeah. Okay. So those two things. What about positioning yourself for venture capital? Yeah. during or after this? Because obviously, yeah. I think with the amount of uncertainty, there's going to be a lot of changes. I mean, we've been through an epic market over the last decade where you know the Dow went from what, six or 7,000 to 29,000, right? So I mean, it's been insane. So getting money during that time frame has been pretty easy in comparison to the past. Yep. So tell us a little bit how you feel some of these things are going to change. Yeah, look, we've been- adapt. We've been living in a super founder-friendly environment, right? Where like you get whatever you want almost and capital is easy to come by. There are lots of people who are trying to give you, give you money. And that's not a world that I think used to exist before. And it's not a world that we're going to exist in the future, at least not for the next year, two years, three years. Now, good news is that there's actually a lot of capital to deploy, right? VCs have a ton of capital they've raised. Money's been raised in the last 12 months or 18 months. It has to be deployed eventually. It can't sit on it forever. But at some point, they're going to try to, de to deploy. But today, most VCs are in what is called portfolio preservation mode. Right? No one has any time to think about new deals. They're thinking about, hi, what do I do with my current company? When you talk to a lot of VCs, I think many will tell you, look, somewhere between 20 and 30% of portfolio companies are going to die because they just won't be able to survive for this period. And so they're focused on like, who can survive? Who's going to die? Who's a winner? How do I help the ones that are going to survive? And how do I make sure that those that are going to die don't have a horrible death, but have something that's like successful. Usually, like even on the companies that are going to die, there's all these options for M&A. But right now, people aren't even willing to buy anybody because the larger companies don't even know what's waiting them, right? So like in this current moment, today, tomorrow, the day after, no one has any options. It's just super, super limited. Now, that said, I think in three months or six months, once we again enter the new normal, people will start looking at new deals. And they're going to be looking at new deals pretty aggressively, I think, because they're going to have so much leverage in, in pricing, right? When companies were worth $10 billion are worth $5 billion, suddenly the VC-backed company that was worth $100 million is worth 50 right, in practice, and so, or maybe even less. And so I think that VCs will slowly enter the market because they will have a lot of leverage to invest. 
and they'll be very, very selective in who to invest in. And in many respects, the moves you make now in terms of saving money, saving on costs, trying to become as profitable as you possibly can be, if you in any way can be profitable or close to it, will really be a very strong measure for VCs in terms of who are they investing in? Is this person willing to take really tough steps to survive? If they are, I'm more willing to invest in them. Kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Let me just talk about that for a second, because I think that's interesting. One thing that I took from that, I think that people have to understand is the valuations are going to change, right? These valuations that these public companies are having, you know, is a direct reflection of what the private valuations and capital raising is going to have. And so people have to get realistic about valuations. Mm -hmm. I think some of them have been very unrealistic. We've even seen that with people that have went, companies that have went public and then six months or a year later, they're trading way below where they went public. So, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot to talk about there. And then the other point was that, you know, through this process, unfortunately, a lot of businesses are going to fail. It's just the way it is. When this, something like this happens, businesses are going to fail. Some of them are going to be businesses that probably would have failed anyway. Some of them were probably yeah. businesses that deserve to fail. And some of them are going to be businesses that had an opportunity. But what I see at the end of this is that ultimately, there's still going to be a lot of capital on the sidelines, but there's going to be less competition for that capital because mm-hmm. businesses, because this, it's their survival of the fittest. I mean, yeah, it's Darwin's exactly. law, right? And that's kind of where we're at. And so yeah. your initial advice about you know, making those difficult decisions to survive and play another day when the market recovers is, I think, spot on. I mean, what other yeah. things would you talk about? So I have a really big thing that people should start working on, not today, but this is at two months from now, three months from now, is that as they think about raising money, like you said, be realistic about valuations. If you have to do a down round, get your existing investors to agree on the down round before you go out. VCs generally don't like to lead a down round. But if you could get your insiders to say, okay, I'm committing X dollar amount to a company at this price, which is half of the price that you had before, but I want you to go get a lead, it's a lot easier to then go get a lead. So try to get your insiders to write a down round term sheet if you have to do it before you go out to fundraise and sign that term sheet. So you have ironclad commitment from them that they're going to come in when there is a down round, if there is one, because that will make it a lot easier for you to get other investors to take a look at the down round. Most people, I think, don't appreciate that kind of intricacy of things. They assume that, oh, yeah, if I can get a lead, my insiders are going to follow. Normally, that's the case. But here, you need to get insiders to really take the, take the medicine in order to help you along. And really good VCs will do that. And the ones who haven't been through these tough times won't realize that you have to do that. So founders will really need to push them to make some of these really tough choices, which I think will be very, very tough to do. But people who will survive will kind of be forced to do that. Thirdly, I think, you know, Take a look at options for debt, right? There are debt lenders, venture debt lenders, others. Today, it's really tough having these conversations, but a month from now, two months from now, I think there'll be options for debt. Sometimes founders get very nervous about venture debt. Oh, I don't know if I want to do it, et cetera. I think in this situation, like getting debt is a really smart thing to do because it extends your own way and might help you. And so if you have a good business, a business that like isn't per se profitable, but it's on a per unit basis, for example, good, consider ways to get additional debt because it'll really definitely help you in the near term as you try to think about, hey, how, how do I survive to the end? The companies, in my view, that will be in the best place will be earlier stage companies. So seed money will open up first, inevitably. Then series A money will, will open up next. Then series B. Later stage is going to be tougher because that's where the most uncertainty will be kind of in that C and D stage. I think that the kind of pre-IPO capital, right, like the money that for companies that meant to go out, that will also open up because there's so much money out there for that. But the middle, kind of the middle squeeze of like after B and before 
pre-IPO stage is going to be the toughest area because so much money into that group of companies has been coming in for, from funds that are like quasi-private, quasi-public company funds like hedge funds. And those guys are going to be running to the hills first, right? The idea of, you know, a Fidelity now doing a Series C is going to probably change. Two or three years ago, Fidelity was doing a lot of Cs and a lot of Ds. Now, I don't think they'll be doing that so much. They'll be looking for companies that are like, okay, I need to know with certainty that you're going to go public within six or 12 months once the market recovers because I cannot have so much money locked up in a private business. And so I think that's where the most pain is going to be. The earlier stage stuff, I think, will open up sooner. And you look in some ways, right around or like at the tail end of a recession is a great time to start companies. If you look at Airbnb, Uber, and so many other great businesses that have been built kind of at the tail end of recessions. Slack, six, WhatsApp, all yeah, those. There's going to be a ton of opportunity to build great stuff and people will. And that's where seed money is going to open up and then, you know, series A money is going to open up. But like, I'm really nervous for companies that need to go to a series C, for example, that's going to be really painful. Yeah. I think that's good advice. And you know, what I love about that first piece of advice about debt is that you actually did that. So you're, you're not just giving people advice. I mean, you've raised debt, right? I mean, you've mm-hmm. raised $75 million in debt. You understand the value of it. You've put it to work in your own business. And so I think that's a really, a really sound piece of advice because I think you're 100% right. Most entrepreneurs, particularly the first time they raise debt, are scared to death to do it. Um, and, because- it and it's painful. And look, we made mistakes too. Like that comes with covenants. You're not used to do that. And so you then need to like relearn how to do finances in a way that manage for covenants. And for example, in our debt, like we have covenants about cash in and cash out. And right when you, we buy cars, there's a lot of cash in and cash out. And you guys get to be really good at managing that. And, and that's not easy. And we never like violated our covenants, thank God. But it certainly was, you know, a couple of times in the beginning when we first had debt, it was like, oh, that's actually kind of close. You want to be careful with that. And so it's a new set of skills you have to develop and finance becomes a really, really important function. I actually think one of the big learnings for me in Silicon Valley has been that a lot of our finance professionals in Silicon Valley aren't used to complex businesses. They're used to kind of, you know, hey, I'm selling these many licenses and I have these many engineers, like that kind of business. But with complexity, there's a lot more challenges. Our business is much more complex, so we need a much stronger kind of finance department with somebody who can manage inventory, manage a workforce that's complicated, et cetera. The need for that is a lot higher when you have debt versus when you do. Love it. Well, listen, is there anything else you want to add today for the listeners? We're going to wrap it up. I got a couple more quick questions and then we'll close it out for today. No, I think the only thing is, look, like it's a really tough time, but this is when you know great entrepreneurs get differentiated from good entrepreneurs, I think. And so it's a really opp- great opportunity for people to shine and do a really awesome thing. Love it. Listen, two rapid fire questions. First one is, what's your favorite growth tool app, SaaS product, something that you use on a regular basis to help you grow your business? Well, for me, like the product that I say I could just not live without, that I like always wonder how people did it before it existed is LinkedIn. The amount of time I spend on LinkedIn looking for people, looking for relationships, recruiting, et cetera, especially in the earliest stage of the business, trying to do recruiting is just incredible. You know, I pay them what, like a thousand or twelve hundred dollars a year. And I'm like, if they charge me five, I would pay five thousand because it's just so critical for my ability to succeed. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Those relationships. And I'm, and I'm right there with you. LinkedIn is my home away from home. It's been a godsend for me. It's helped me generate tons of business and tons of great relationships. So I think that's great. And what would be one book that you would recommend? Maybe something that you've read or that you think would help the readers along in their journey? Well, look, I actually love reading political philosophy. So I will say books that most people wouldn't read, like 
Plato's Republic and, and Aristotle's politics. But, you know, those are kind of the foundational texts that help me how to learn how to think and how to make tough kind of choices when you have to make choices in your head. And that's always been super important to my analytical abilities. And so that's kind of what I would probably. So any political philosophy books? Yeah. Love it. All right. Well, listen, I'm sure they're going to all go run out to Amazon and order some of those. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Listen, I really appreciate you being here, George. It's been awesome. Let everybody know how they can learn more about Shift, learn more about you, maybe connect with you, and then we'll wrap it up for today. Yeah. So Shift.com is our website. Feel free to go there and use it. It's a, we have a lot of great cars available. You know, these days, I think people are going to have a higher demand for cars actually than before because public transport users are going to go down. So I encourage people to do that. And I you know I'm on LinkedIn. I'm George Harrison or Twitter, also George Harrison. So either one of those are great. Love it. I'll make sure I put those links in the show notes. Really appreciate you being there. Be safe out there in uh, San Francisco. And I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Great. Thank you very much. Likewise. Listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in. I truly appreciate your time. If you're enjoying the podcast, then do me a huge favor. Click the subscribe button now and please leave me a review. It would mean a lot to me.